Pod Clubhouse. Attention all passengers. The temperature outside is minus 119 degrees Celsius. We are six years, nine months, and 26 days from departure. For your personal safety, be prepared to brace. This is Paul. This is Kat. And this is Inez. And tonight we're going to talk to you guys about the third episode of the second season of TNT's Snowpiercer. This one is called A Great Odyssey. I wish I had read um, my Homer in high school like I was supposed to to see (laughs) what the possible tie-ins here. I mean, we know that Melanie is about to depart on this possibly suicidal trek across the Colorado mountains. Are there any other uh, literary tie-ins that you you, uh, might like to make using the word Odyssey in the title like that? Well, shit, Paul, I didn't know that I was going to have to use cliff notes <laughs> for today's <laughs> session. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. All right, me neither. So we're all on the same footing there. I'm sure maybe some big brain will, will uh, write in and say, well, of course, Odysseus had to go through the Rocky Mountains in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all didn't do our homework, I guess. In that yeah, class. <laughs> uh, we didn't do the reading. That's the that story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've been checking on Alexandra's uh, loyalty meter as we've been going. I've been counting a 10 being Mr. Wilford, a 1 being more toward Mel. And man, this, this episode more than any other really shifted the meter for me. I put her around a six. What about you guys? You know, as a mama to a baby girl, I really was feeling and hoping that this was the journey and my gut instincts of the path that she was headed towards. So I'm going to put her at like an eight, a cautious eight. An eight, but that's still firmly in the Wilford side. Oh, fuck. Okay. A two. A two. <laughs> I, I forgot to ask, like, what's the scale again? I needed a right. reminder for Mel, that. Mel's one, Wilford's ten. Yeah, and I would say three. For, three, um, okay. Yeah. So you guys have a little more faith in that maternal daughter connection than I do, apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems a little bit... Um, like in this episode seemed a little quick like oh she was so on the other side seven years she's it was just like a tv sort of turn but then i really like melanie is going and possibly gonna die and i feel like she probably thought like i gotta just let it all out now even if i kind of hate her in some ways for what she did and i think you know she really showed where she wants to be at least if melanie were to make it back and so that's why i feel like it's pretty close. Like we, she does really care about her, even though she's trying to like put on a face that, you know, she doesn't. And this really like her going to possibly her death changed it for me, I think. And also for Alex. I feel that Mr. Wilford still has a very strong hold on Alex at this point where she still doesn't want to disappoint him. I know that mother love is, is higher than Wilford disappointment on the scale of things. But that's where I'm putting it right now. I'm not saying it's not sliding. I mean, we we did get the little hand and the glass and all that at the end, but we did not get an I love you uh, in return when when, um, Mel offered hers. So all in all, my seesaw lead leans more toward Mr. Wilford. 
Well, okay. So we're going to talk loyalty meter as far as like doing the job of an engineer. You know, I'm going to still have more faith in Alex just because I feel like she realized going through that extreme stress and then having that follow up with Melanie is probably the first time she's really realized that she has a kind kind of option out here or the right thing. Somebody kind of encouraging um, that the maybe the pressure is not necessary. And, and then I feel like she's such a scientist. This girl is a brilliant scientist already. And she's data driven and, you know, she's, she's learning from Melanie telling her, this is how he operates. This cruelty is just going to continue. Nothing about this is going to get better. It'll probably get worse. And I think that Alex is going to take that seriously. And I think that she already connects with that message, considering what we've just witnessed her um, undergo with Wilfred, like encouraging her, like you do want to kill your mom, right? Like we could totally take over and do this right now. Like that's so awful. Um, and so, so that's why I think that those are the kind of interactions that actually might push Alex away more quickly. And then, especially in the face of never seeing her mother ever again. Well, that ties into a question that I had about why is it just imperative for him to keep testing her like that with putting her in charge of the engine during the big boost maneuver and all these other high stress situations where Melanie kind of hangs in the balance, like even using her as the emissary at the end of last season, you know, when the trains connected, it seems like there might've been another person to do that, but it was important, at least in Wilford's mind, that it was her why do you think that he keeps testing her? Well, I think two things. Where her loyalty really lies, whether she's going to you know, side with Melanie or with him, and then he can deal with that how he wants to, although she is the engineer. So if, if Melanie's going off to her death and like he obviously doesn't like Ben, um, and maybe he could work with Javi or he, he'll force Javi to work with him. But, you know, like, so he will still need Alex to run the train. And then so that's my second point is like, just maybe under the pressure points of if anything's going to test her, wouldn't it be saving her mom's life? You know, like, like if she can handle that, then she'll be able to handle anything in the future of running uh, Snowpiercer or, and Big Alice. So I feel like he's kind of doing it in both ways, but it's just a tricky thing that he's doing a big gamble, you know, because he is kind of wanting to break her in a way to, you know, have those moments, but then also it's like, he's going to push her away, but I guess they all kind of need each other, right? Because she's going to be an engineer. He's going to be there. So I don't know. But I feel like that was for me. Those were the reason why he was doing those things. What you're saying reminds me of what they do at work with uh, people that they tab for bigger and better things is they um, toss them at a job that they're not qualified for. <laughs> 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 and if they make it, great. Then they move them on to the next job. If they don't, mm, well, you know, that's the cost of doing business. Yeah. Oof, yes. <laughs> in this case, the Snowpiercer, the cost of doing business is like, well, Melanie's going to die. We're not going to have the best engineer that, you know, he's even said that she's the best engineer. And then like, yeah, we're just going to rely on this teenager that, you know, has only had my training. <laughs> but doesn't doesn't Mr. Wilford strike you as one of those villains, like the comedian or somebody like that, that kind of relishes in the finding humor in, in these situations? Like the way he kept laughing through the boost maneuver. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's probably the reference. 
Oh my God. I think that there totally is some validity in that this is like a very aggressive coaching session that he might have been giving Alex, um, you know, under those extreme circumstances. Sure. Maybe, maybe there's some element of that, but it, I, I can't help but feel like he's so arrogant and narcissistic that this was really a big flex and also a way of just totally confusing Alex in the moment and flustering her because he really would be happy if he died, like taking everybody out with him. So I feel like he's kind of in a, what do I have to lose? Like I can either gain everything or everybody can lose everything kind of mentality. And that's totally just my story that I'm making up. It's just because I, he's such a dick. <laughs> well, yeah, he does seem like very reckless with the remains of, of humanity, right? Like you said, willingly losing the, the best engineer for the train. He, uh, it must mean that he feels like he's got enough in Alex that they can do okay with what he's invested in her. That would be the only explanation I can think of where he could rationalize, like, well, it's okay to lose Melanie despite her <laughs> treachery <laughs> and all that. Uh, I guess her engineering skills do not outweigh the treachery in his mind. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even want Ben. He wants nothing to do with Ben either. And, you know, like, it sounds like Ben and Javi are some pretty good options, too. And he wants nothing to do with any of them either. Speaking of Ben... Boy, that Ben Free Zone business gave me, like, got my wheels turning. Like, what is the relationship here? Did that have the same effect on you guys? It's been really emphasized in these first few episodes. Like, like uh, Wilford just, um, oh, Ben, is it Ben? You know, is Ben the one? And then, and then this one, the Ben Free Zone. And yeah, I'm really curious to, to know what happened or if he helped in taking the train. Because obviously he he knew about it from the very beginning, I'm assuming, because so, he's an engineer. So yeah, I want to I wanna see that showdown, hopefully later in the season, if they like come head to head. <laughs> I kind of interpreted that whole scene as building on to like Wilford's character that's just showing that how, that he's just kind of petty throws a lot of tantrums and I mean he fucking puts a big old like red throne chair just to meet people <laughs> <laughs> pass through there so uh and then you know doing this whole Ben Free Zone declaration stuff to me screams petty but maybe you know they all know each other very intimately he was very pissed when he found out in episode one that Ben was there and he couldn't let it go. So I'm thinking it's probably more of a, just a petty thing. How many times can I say petty in like 30 seconds? <laughs> yeah. When you uh, said it that many times, it made me wonder if you were comparing him to any recently departed politicians or, 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 or not. <laughs> this is a politic free zone, Paul. Yes. It is. It is. It is. But sometimes we just can't help but wonder if the writers are, are getting cute on us. Uh, I definitely had thoughts and that is where my mind went. <laughs> but for respect for the pod clubhouse, <laughs> I'm staying in my lane. The pettiness is, is real faux shizzle, but um, <laughs> I got my mind spinning on what Kat was talking about. Like, did he play some role in whatever duplicity led uh, Mr. Wilford to not be on the train at the time of departure? You know, is it something where Ben said you're needed off the train or, you know, some, some, some role in that? Or does it go back further? Like we were wondering. Who's the baby daddy? <laughs> that or or even um 
you know, we were wondering if like Mel and Miss Audrey had some sort of relationship with Mr. Welford going back well into their youth. Well, what if it's not exclusive to women? I was thinking it was he was just collecting a harem of bright women. But what if what if he had some sort of management training program or, you know, something like that? And and Ben was in there somewhere and and he had a lot of stock in Ben at one point and then blammo, something else happens. Totally. I mean, so he had a lot of stock definitely in them. They knew all knew each other pretty intimately. Uh, so it definitely could be uh, a part. I'm down to see. Hopefully they'll give us a little bit of insight to that. Rewinding to that opening speech. And this is probably just my personal lens, as, as we'll call it. <laughs> but I keyed into the moment when he referred to himself. Uh, he's asking the, the crew what what do they expect of him or what what should he have done with who he is and what he knows as being this old white man and i wondered why he needed to throw in white in there did that key into you guys at all did it did it did it register or was it just like well he's just an old guy talking i i probably had thoughts of, um, you know, kind of tying it back into current events to see if there's some kind of allusion to that. Um, and also, you know, feeds into the story of white male fragility. And, you know, he's trying to emphasize in his morning speech to everybody, you know, that he's just this mere white man. Like I'm a victim. We're here. We're going to get our ship because we are victims. And so I'm just <laughs> I think it's probably part of part cute. <laughs> yeah. It did strike me as odd that he used it because I mean, Snowpiercer is global, right? Like there's um, all sorts of ethnicities and also, um, you know, different countries and stuff. And while it, it hasn't been mentioned that much, the race stuff, I'm assuming the world that they came from probably, you know, had that, those issues, but like, I don't know, it seemed a little odd to be putting it in here now. It felt a little 2020 slash 2021. Yeah, it did. It did because in the, in terms of like what we've seen from the show, only the show that hasn't really been brought up because I think it it would be for me, it'd be more like the gender stuff possibly, but even then, like, it doesn't feel like that's, it either because everyone's just trying to survive so it's like that stuff it seems to have been like the least important thing right the the, the man on woman fight club uh, from last season right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so they got by the gender stuff what threw me about it i, I don't know i guess I, I just tie in current events uh and current thinking and that kind of stuff because that's when they're writing it which is mm-hmm. now i feel like it just wasn't necessary it just felt like what you're saying to me i felt like it was character development. Like they're trying to put a very specific kind of like tone and feeling in how you're formulating his character in your mind. And like I said, because current events and, uh, you know, awareness of these topics like, you know, Black Lives Matter, white fr- white fragility and, and these terms evolving in our social community, to me, it, it kind of felt like they were really, you know, just trying to characterize Wilford. Say the world of Snowpiercer doesn't take place like right now. It takes place sometime in the future when we have the ability to create this technology, this perpetual motion engine. You could then maybe conclude that someone, say, my age would wind up being Mr. Wilford, just, you know, advancing the clock 20-something years. And it would be generally white guys my age that are 
I guess you could argue this one way or the other, and I don't want to get too deep into it because this isn't that show, <laughs> but um, that that guys my age, white guys my age, are basically being told, like, your opinion is not exactly what we want to hear right now. And so go 20 years, make me the richest guy on the planet, the most powerful guy last on the planet left in control of my own train. Would I still have some sort of animus about that and need to need to be like, well, aha, look at me, the white guy. I, I don't know. You I probably what? would. I'm, pro- I'm petty. <laughs> I'm very petty like that. So. <laughs> maybe. Uh, maybe. I mean, he didn't get there in a vacuum, right? You see where I'm going with that? I'm, I'm not trying to cast any kind of dark light on, on what is happening right now in terms of getting a broader spectrum of opinions from... Anybody and everybody. I'm not trying to say that's bad. I'm just saying that there's a there's a there's a population out there that would look at that broadening as as a narrowing of a certain voice, in particular guys that look a lot like me. That's what I was just wondering if that guy 20 years from now would have that kind of opinion. <laughs> yeah. It's possible, or he can probably he he also has the opportunity and choice to have like developed himself and learned along the way and maybe he could have been like the most inclusive uh you know type of leader on the train but uh you know if he if he chooses to hold on to that bitterness that is a choice at the end of the day in my opinion yeah he's kind of more of a predator mindset you know uh uh, you or me sort of mindset and i don't know that you learn a lot of you know, songs by the campfire when <laughs> when you have that mindset, if you take my meaning. Did you notice uh, while he was making his announcement, his, his stuff there, um, he had his radio appeared to be using vacuum tubes. The reason that struck me is just that that's wildly out of date, especially if this is some years on from now, even. Vacuum tubes would have been something that was in, like, ENIAC, you know, computers around the 50s, that kind of stuff, TVs and radios and stuff like that from that time period. And you could see them when he was making his adjustments before he turned on the the microphone. I wonder if that was just a affectation of the production design or mm. if, if there's some meaning there to using something like that. Because from what I understand, I'm not sure, but those, I think, are EMP-proof. I'm not sure. Maybe some sciencey person could tell me if that's true or not. <laughs> Meaning, like, couldn't be d- disabled by an electromagnetic pulse. Well, there's a lot of the futuristic stuff in this world. There's also a bit of the analog still there, like the radios um, that um, they used um, in the series finale in season one. You know, the one where they couldn't be heard through, like the one that Mel used with Ben. I feel like it can't just be coincidence or just like production design. I feel like there's some sort of meaning or that's just like what he likes. Maybe it's like an ode to um, the the past, you know, that he that he loved or something like that, you know. I mean, it could be. His, his train is pretty spartan everywhere else. Everyone else has to sleep in bunks. They're very nice bunks, I guess, but, but they're still bunks. And But meanwhile, he's got like this swinging bachelor pad, sort of like Austin Powers <laughs> in the engine. But then he has this, this cool, it's almost like steampunk kind of technology, you know? I also wonder, because um, we, we don't know exactly 
obviously he never even got on Snowpiercer, but it must have been outfitted for him. Um, assuming that he knew he was he wanted to run and be on Snowpiercer. So I'm wondering like when they really like kicked him out, like because he seems to have gotten all his stuff on <laughs> on Big Alice. So I wonder like what that was and if we'll if we'll know that in the in the future episodes of the season because it seems like he got everything I mean not everything he needed, but he got his close you know and first the world ending and hey we got to get on this train like how was he able to kind of hey i didn't get in snowpiercer they kicked me out and then like go into big alice and like still have all his stuff is what i'm curious about or is it because it's like that one was the storage so maybe he had that in there already i don't know that's a good point because i mean ostensibly we were supposed to believe that the room that Melanie was living in, if anyone should ever come and ask, they would look in there and be like, well, he's just not here, but this is his shit, right? Yeah. Uh, on Snowpiercer. But the styling, I mean, one looks like an Ikea version of a dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, like Melanie's very clean, uh, you know, very tidy and stuff. And then like his is just like, it's a party, party zone. So I'm just curious, like he must have gotten kicked out way before or unless he had time, you know, maybe it was one of those like, oh, you got it. We got to get on there. But they had three more days till the apocalypse, you know, (laughs) he was able to to get his minions to put all his stuff in there. I don't know. (laughs) One of those hurry up and wait apocalypses. Yeah, that uh, I really like um, where you're going with this cat. It makes me wonder, like, how did other people like not suspect something was wrong so long ago? If like all these first class passengers, you know, were very well acquainted with him and his personality, like to hide it for seven years, pretending that he's just in a in a little yeah. bunk, dorm bunk in the front of the engine. They're like, yeah, right, right. Because I think what was Big Alice, uh, I can't recall, but was Big Alice intended to be a supply train to pick up like sometime down the years or was it meant to be attached right from the get-go? And if it was meant to be attached from the get-go because they built it, then that can maybe make sense of why it would just already be built. But yeah, that's, I totally didn't even like think about all this. Cause I just assumed that, that they had first class bunks that was going to be for Mr. Wilford. And it's could have been very similar to the lavish carts that the other first class passengers had. And that's why, I don't know. I just feel like now that you're saying this, then maybe <laughs> these people are idiots. <laughs> I should have realized it a lot sooner. Yeah, because he like he has not been out of anything. Like he wants to be in it, and it's like yeah, like you would have thought he was recluse. Like everything is mo- it has his uh, what's it called? Is it the monogram? Every single thing is monogrammed with that big old W. Even like to the sensor that Melanie shot up into the atmosphere. Even that balloon that literally has no branding need has a big giant W on it. So uh, you know now seeing all this, it, I'm totally down to see what exactly that timeline really is because in my mind I've been just picturing that you know that very dramatic like he's literally at the door and the train's going and I close it in his face and that was the end of it (laughs) yeah a lot of questions there I think what they've said about big Alice was that she was the prototype if I understood but then there is that scene when Ben says the supply train or Ben and Mel are talking about it and they call it the supply train That whole bit was never really explained in enough detail for me to feel super satisfied about, you know, Bennett 
in the in the season one finale, deceiving everybody so that the other train could catch up. Um, you know, seeing a little bit of this season, we know that <laughs> he doesn't have any rapport with Mr. Wilford. Why would he want him to catch up? Who yeah. was he expecting to be on that other train? His mom? Like, what was going <laughs> on here? I think he just really wanted the supplies. And he was hoping, because I think, uh, I just rewatched it because, you know, my husband was watching the first season. And so I was like, uh, it, I saw that scene again and it just kind of honed in. I think he was like trying to fool them because I don't think he thought Wilfred was on there because he kept saying like, oh, he's not on there. He's not, you know, like it could not be him. It could not be him. So maybe he was just really wanting those engineering supplies. <laughs> okay. So in his mind, you think that Mr. Wilfred wasn't there, but somebody was running the train. And he was just happy enough to risk that whoever was running it would share the supplies. I think so. Yeah. But that poses questions to me about like, why the secrecy when everything Uh, about their ecosystem is so fragile, right? And, and they, and Melanie relies on all of these details and resources to make these very difficult decisions. So I feel like the only motive for the secrecy would be him knowing possibly very, like a high probability that Wilford would be on the train. Um, So maybe it was wishful hoping but he knew it wasn't certain enough to, you know, be open and honest about it because Melanie probably would have been like, oh, well, <laughs> we'll just yeah. have to figure out life without the supply train. Yeah. Or it could go back to the question of when and where, who got booted when, and did Ben know, um, you know, maybe Melanie got on the train and Bennett was the one that last saw Wilford, you know, like peace, you know, and he, he saw him go on the, on, like, you know, like he had to have known about Big Alice. I don't know. I feel like as engineers, they're not going to take risks like that. And he wouldn't have done that. So lots of questions on the origin story that I hope we get some sort of flashback or maybe the drug induced thing from Miss Oshry <laughs> to get, to get some answers. That'd be great. Cause I need these sorts of things defined in order to really buy into the show this just sort of like, well, one train left, the other one took a while, but they got going to, I need a little bit more than that, I'm afraid. Another sequence in this episode that left me with a ton of questions about what's coming up revolves around Icy Bob and the doctors. What was, what's their real name? I like doctors McCreep, but, but <laughs> what is their real name? Did you catch that? I'm going to Google the actress because I know one of her is Sakina Joffrey. Um, okay. So let's see if, um, what her, I think it's Headwood. Headwood. Okay. Yes. Although they're only listed as Mr. And Mrs. Headwood and not as doctors. Oh, so are they married? Uh, I guess they seemed a little bit more like brother and sister to me, but okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So we got a long sequence, two sequences really with Icy Bob and, it's clear what they're doing is they're getting they they're doing experiments to try to see just how much the human body can endure in terms of the cold and what they can do to augment the human body to make it withstand more. That's all on the surface there. We get it. What we don't get is why they need it. That second scene when he comes back and says I need him in colder for longer and you we they mentioned something about a timeline of having a month to get him there. And he's like, well, count on half of that. The only other timeline that we've talked about in this episode is the month that we're going to take to go do a quick 
turnaround somewhere elsewhere in the world to bring the train back to the Rockies so that Mel can get back on the train. I can't figure out with what we've got what he has in store for Icy Bob. Is it something having to do with Mel or is Mel not related to this Icy Bob business? It's more like he has Snowpiercer plans like, you know, go fuck up Snowpiercer from the outside or something or or any any thoughts or are you just as clueless as me on this? Yeah, Steve and I went back and forth on this a little bit. Um, You know, we, we we wrote out the scenario if he if, you know, would it really be wise to send my one and only superhuman resource out <laughs> to follow Melanie on a mission that even Melanie doesn't believe she's going to survive because it actually is quite easy to kill her. All you have to do is not come back. And, and unfortunately, that's how easy it is, right? So that's how fragile that situation is. I personally, as a resource manager, would never, <laughs> would never send my guy out for that. I would move that resource into the train. So I think he's going to do something very similar to what we saw in the opening uh, season and uh, or the opening scene episode. And uh, I think it's gonna I think it's going to be a move on Snowpiercer. I was thinking, um, but now that Ines has been talking about it, that makes more sense on the resource management. But I was thinking more of like, I guess I watched too much TV. Uh, like, uh, if he, he seems to not want Mel to come back. And so I was thinking like, maybe she's on her way back. And then he's just going to like have either, um, him follow her or like also just like maybe go out when she's coming back and like not let her come back <laughs> like inside. Cause I don't, I don't see why he would need to be colder. Um, when essentially like the train cannot be opened, you know? So mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's just mischievous, like either outside the train to do some some work or I was just thinking more of a very cheesy like she's gonna, he's going to kick her out when she's coming back in. <laughs> I think he does have something specific in mind. The timeline not matching up with Mel, it kind of threw me off there. So it did lead me back to Snowpiercer and something that he has in mind because he his morning announcement said something about today we retake what's mine uh, it's not even ours. It's it's mine. It's clearly mine. And then he talks about Icy Bob and his, his sacrifice and all that. That's what makes me think he's got big plans for Bob and Snowpiercer specifically, but not sure what. Man, I would hate to be Bob. I wonder if the same guy that plays Bob was ever one of the guys that played the mountain on Game of Thrones. You know how they're like three different yeah, guys. so play. huge. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, they have to feed him a lot. So I wonder if that's why everybody's starving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet he he takes a little more than his uh, fair share. No, his name is Andre Tricoteau, like a French spelling. And he was not the mountain. He was he's he's mostly a stunt guy. Anyway. I do have a random question about Icy Bob, and it's okay. just kind of like a, a, a thinker's what if. It's the creative moment um, here. So, obviously, Icy Bob is down to, like, fights the Snowpiercer crew. We saw him kind of kick everybody's ass because he's the only one who can walk through snow. Um, however, do you think that Icy Bob's, like, mind and will, like, his his will um, has also been altered by this? Or do you think he is actively making his decisions to follow Wilford's 
request and go undergo the experimentations because he thinks this is what's right? Or do you think that part of the work that they've been doing on him has, uh, has been about like taking away his free will? Oh yeah, definitely. I think, I I think just in terms of sci-fi kind of stuff, it seems like no one would want to want that. And I feel like they got desperate and maybe it was sort of a volunteer thing at the beginning. Maybe he was injured as well. And then they kind of just, maybe in order to kind of save him from frostbite or something, they just got out of hand in a way, but it seems like he's not all there. (laughs) It's my thing. It kind of would be cool to like see an icy Bob, like being really diplomatic, like at at a decision making (laughs) table, you know? So that's what got me thinking. (laughs) I think that what Kat was talking about made a lot of sense with the idea that you might have had this guy who perhaps was uh, one of the breachmen that that we met in uh, Snowpiercer. Oh, Maybe. good point. Because they all kind of had like scarring, right? Yeah, yeah. Remember, remember, we met, and I mentioned briefly the idea of of the breachmen that we met last season when the cattle car cattle yep. car got messed up, and how he felt a little bit more at home in the cold than others, and then this guy. The idea that he would have gone and needed to try to fix something and then had an accident, comes in, they patch him up, and they're like, all of a sudden they figure out somehow that he can adapt to colder temperatures a little bit better now that he has the goop treatment or et cetera, et cetera. And maybe you start with a guy that, like Kat was saying, maybe isn't all there (laughs) or is, you know, just maybe not as... um, capable uh, as others maybe he's more of a follower or some other factor i'm not sure what but he agrees and to keep getting more and more and more and he just winds up the way that he is just because you know mr wilford's a smooth talker he got into the situation from an accident anyway and it just kind of compiled to where he is now may never get that full backstory with poor bob though I don't. I don't know that this is a, a spe- origin, origin story. Uh, yeah, I don't know if this is a speaking part for for the actor or not. They do have me curious, though. Speaking of someone who has a speaking part but didn't use much of it this week, Miss Audrey. My goodness, last week she was walking around half naked in front of other people fairly confident of what she was doing this week with what I guess in her mind seems to be the rapid approach of Mr. Wilford into her sphere of influence. Now all of a sudden she's drunk and can't really handle her shit anymore. Um, Did you guys um, also kind of chart the the collapse of of Miss Audrey? Yeah, it seems like she is now facing maybe what she's ignored or thought was over and then having it back in your life. Whatever happened must have been really bad <laughs> with, with Wilford for her to just start drinking because she always seems very put together and is on her stuff. And she's the one kind of doling out those things. You know, she even created that whole room for the experience and having, you know, being in control. I don't know if we're going to, I wonder if we're going to get that backstory on also what happened between her and Wilford because her, Melanie and, um, you know, Ben, I need to know these origin stories with Wilford and what, what went down. Cause it seems like it's some heavy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yeah, they do such a great job on really feeding that curiosity as to what the fuck did he do? Like, you know, he obviously 
her reactions are so extreme that it, it's a counter to whatever kind of high stress situation he must have put her in. And we've seen the kind of pressure that he puts on like a 15 or 16 year old girl. Um, so who knows what kind of collateral he's placed on her shoulders or who knows what kind of abuse she was subjected to, um, you know, with his obsession and need for constant control when she's, you know, in the business of helping people relinquish control and things like that. I just hurt the stuff that she's involved in is so intimate. And then for her to know him so intimately, I'm now just kind of thinking like I'm bracing myself for something like very traumatic about her story. If I had a bell, I'd ring it for the fact that she used the word brace. Yes. I love that. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. When I saw that, that she couldn't keep her shit together this week, it gave me all that, all the same stuff you guys were talking about, needing to know her backstory, wanting to know what went on with all of them before the train or when the train was getting started. What is the deal here? Because you both of you were right. She does keep it together. I mean, she runs uh, this this multifunctional space that includes kind of a therapeutic aspect. And, and so shit must go down in the night car. She has the the fights are in there, too, sometimes. Right. So this is yeah. this is not a low stress area that, that she's decided to run. And yet here she is um, laid low by just the idea that this person who may or may not be her nemesis is is approaching from the rear of the of the train right and you know the original intentions was to be a brothel so who knows if the therapy stuff came like after or if that was just kind of like part of something that she offered with the brothel kind of experience before the life that was on the train. And when you remember that, it also reminds like of an even lower kind of place of what Wilford must have like placed her and, and the expectation among like the people who are going to be using her and her peers, you know, as this end of the world brothel kind of space. And I think Kat was right. The safety of knowing that your abuser is probably dead allowed her to thrive in this environment for the last seven years. And then knowing that your biggest threat to your, your life is now just at the door, literally at the door, trying to take over. And you are about to, you're thinking you're about to relive all of that trauma all over again. The, the idea that, that you could be on Snowpiercer, basically the only vehicle left in the world that, that has people alive on it. And the only thing that you're actually scared of is just this guy down the hall <laughs> is, is, is very telling, very telling for her. Um, let's shift to some of our fra favorite tailies. We had mentioned a, a week or so ago about the idea of winning the kingdom or running the kingdom. Well, someone put voice to that this week when they said revolutionaries make bad politicians. And they were talking about Leighton in yeah. that I think he is losing the tail, the side eyes that we were getting when he was visiting Josie, etc. Mm -hmm. um, helped underline that if he were to lose the tail, the people anyway in terms of his base, like, I mean, how does he stay in charge? Because it wasn't like he had the support of the ticketed passengers. Maybe it's like a foreshadowing, you know, when uh, Wilford 
was kind of mocking him for being in the engineer's conversation early on in the episode. And he replies, well, citizen oversight, maybe that'll feed and inspire his constituents need some better <laughs> representation now. Um, and Till explains some of that. I, I think she was, uh, I think that they, they did cover a little bit where they did this, but they didn't have a plan. See, change management is important for all of you <laughs> leaders who are listening to the podcast. <laughs> so, so I think he could totally rally himself up and and learn. Um, I don't think Layton is the type of person to be dismissive. I feel like he is empathetic um, and he cares. And I think we'll see him grow and develop as a leader. I mean, I think Wilford tried to bring him down again by kind of mocking him like, oh, you learned so much in just a couple of days or whatever, um, like just really trying to put him down and all the leadership training that I've participated in. Um, I think Layton has got what it takes to ignore it and stay focused and develop and get those people represented. <laughs> I agree with all that. And then, but I also feel like, um, it's just feeling really rocky right now and it makes me uneasy. <laughs> um, because every time, you know, Wilford's, he gets an audience, it's like, uh, like, you know, who knows who he's going to sway, you know? And, um, so I, I hope that Layden can get it together and kind of be the leader that they need. And also, um, I guess, kind of repair some of the damage, especially with Josie. I don't think it's going to sit well with those, with the, with the tailies of, you know, what happened, what went down, like what, how did you get Zara pregnant when, you know, like you were with Josie and you had just lost for like three days or something. So I think that's not going to sit well with them. And honestly, I think it's going to have to fall in the, in, in the, uh, in Josie's court, like whether she accepts him or not because they're not really going to look to him as the leader. I think overall they will if the, it's under attack, but I feel like in terms of like pure leadership, like I think she, he's going to need to get endorsed if we're talking in politician terms by Josie. And that's not hardly a done deal by the, no. by the looks of things. Did you guys think it was uh, interesting timing with how, you know, the train, the lights are going out. They're kind of tipping off the tracks Everything's going down. And when Leighton breaks into Josie's room, she's like, hey, I'd like to cut off my bandages and take a look at my face right now. Yeah. It was very odd. <laughs> like right now, you guys could flip over. like <laughs> Scissors, you know, right next to your face. Exactly. <laughs> And Josie's so impulsive. Uh, no, I, I thought that was an interesting timing to do it but then again you know Josie probably didn't even realize what was happening I don't know if they um you know went out of the way to go update her especially when they were not going to move the patients from medical during all of this They're, they weren't mustering so um and I think that's why he went right just to kind of keep her company keep her informed as to what was happening related to that so she might not have known that that was going to happen. And, but, but it did kind of annoy me seeing that he did go ahead and help her <laughs> to do that anyway, because shit can't just like come and infect your face. Like, come on, we're, you know, it, this is such a vulnerable time from an infection standpoint. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like cheesy to me, but like, again, I, I'm, that's just sci-fi cheese tax in, in my mind. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I got too, unfortunately, was was that they needed every ounce of tension that they could out of this moment, you know, making the 
the corner and the booster and the people crowded into the muster points and all that. And so what could they do to even amp it up just a, just a little bit more? Well, not have Leighton just, you know, play cards with her on <laughs> in her room, but, you know, manipulate the scissors and show her how her face has come out after being frozen off and all it's- that totally ironic considering like you know his review of their strategy his strategy discussing with um melanie protect the science at all costs (laughs) and that's not a very pro-science scene i'm sorry (laughs) right it turns out when you don't have skin you're wide open to infection it's it's just the way it works skin (laughs) helps keep it away that said, regardless of whether or not he participated in her ill-advised face mask cutting removal, he's going to need her, I think. I think you guys are on to something that the fact that she was sort of martyred and then came back is going to give her a lot of clout, a lot of sway with the tail population. And even though they are, you know, there are the other three classes and all that, Perhaps maybe the fact that the tail was so crowded in place, maybe their numbers are actually much bigger and more competitive with the other numbers of of ticketed passengers to make it so that you can't ignore them at all. That was the lesson from the first season. You can't ignore them. But here, Leighton has to address this, and he doesn't (laughs) – he's not working from a position of strength having this baby with Zara. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I did like, though, um, that one of those predictions that, like, um, I think we had talked about with Ruth and and him, like, where Melanie kind of says before she leaves, hey, make sure you don't cross her and lie to her. Yeah, yeah, Ruth, right. <laughs> like, she made sure to emphasize that, and I was like, please, I hope you follow her advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, there did seem to be some reconciling with, with Ruth in this episode, which was, mm-hmm. which was nice to see. Ruth is not... Uh, as as stony as she wants to be. No, I think she's going through a lot of emotions right now. Like her idol is alive, but then the idol she was actually worshiping was not who she thought. And then she's dealing with her management and trying to keep the train going. Like, I think it's a lot for Ruth, especially I think she's one of those people that likes to have her own kind of control and, and all that. And it's like all over the place right now. I think she's in overdrive. <laughs> I mean, she commented on the the stationary of the... That yeah. <laughs> so to say that Ruth likes to have some uh, hand in control, I think yeah. that's accurate. Yes. Yeah, I, I definitely am much more comfortable now thinking that Ruth is more loyal to the train than to Wilford. So if we go back to your loyalty meter. I think I was saying that she's probably still like a 10. And after the first episode, I still really wasn't convinced at too much in the second one. But I feel like she's I think that after she got rejected and turned away at the door uh, when she asked if she can come over. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. And uh, I can see she was hurt in the face. And then now Melanie leaving. Uh, I think she is totally here for the train. And I think if Wilford asked her to do something very sketchy, I think now would be more pause than um, I would have said in episode yeah. one. Yeah. And, and I think if she also found out what happened to Kevin, <laughs> I think that loyalty meter would probably, you know, 
<laughs> oh my god yes i yeah. would hope so i think now yeah i think she totally would not forgive that yes <laughs> poor kevin don't we have two bathtubs <laughs> oh man and it's made me so like uh, you know wilford when he's telling them like oh he got sick from something over there like yeah. oh i just wanted to punch him in the face oh yes the, the whole the whole bit with the throne and all that I mean, not letting Melanie have the parts that she wanted and and then getting upturned by Andre and his food. Ah, that, that scene was pretty cool. The last little bit I'd like to talk about before I open it to the floor um, is the scene with the breach man and, and basically the whole investigation uh, with Till and Roche um, into Sykes and her missing fingers. Personally... I don't think that the breachmen as a whole are responsible for this crime. That's how police procedurals work. They don't take you to the who did it on like the first commercial break, which <laughs> <laughs> are good ones at least. <laughs> right. But that doesn't mean that our guy isn't hiding in there amongst them. Like they seriously had Wilford tattoos on them. Like it really made me pause and maybe appreciate how large his brand was at the time of the end of the earth phase one. Um, Cause now that we're entering phase two where mother earth is taking over, but um, or is it's fixing herself. But um, you know, in the, beginning there i think i didn't really appreciate how embedded wilford might have actually been in the community around the world and particular the community that even the employees who are working on the train and um it just gave me a little insight into like how more powerful than he is like i know he's not physically like a powerful man in comparison to to everything but he's embedded in their emotions and their culture that they put his brand on his body and they make such a point in branding every single little minute detail with the w on his train and his property and it made me kind of think about like if there's like this subculture kind of gang that existed for a long time beforehand and maybe that's why they're possibly embedded within here because they said it was in devastating news to find out that Wilford was not actually on the train, like that they were really hurt and distraught by this change. And I don't think I picked up that it was sarcasm. I thought it might've been sarcasm for a second, but it did not read as sarcasm much longer than that. Yeah. And I also think it's, it's interesting to see like, or at least I, I'm, especially with Ruth and maybe, and then these, it's like the idea of Wilford or whoever Wilford was in their eyes before they got on the train or why he recruited them or whatever is so deep. Although the idea that they're thinking of now of, of what, who Wilford is, is essentially Melanie because she's the one that has played him for seven years so i wonder also it's kind of like a mind fucking away right because like like they remember this wilford character you know from from previous from pre-melanie but they've been living with wilford that was melanie and so i wonder in their eyes like who they're really thinking wilford is and what he's going to do for them because it's all over the place on on who this person was or what he was built to be so i wonder what was that image before they got on the train right 
That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, the idea that what are the chances that these guys and ladies would have had some long-standing working relationship with Mr. Wilford where they would have come to this level of idolizing him prior to having been on the on the train. And before that, the train would have been like a construction project and they would have been training, I'm sure, to meet the kinds of challenges that their role on the train would bring to them. Uh, which I understand would be something like when the train has a hole in it, they got to fix it and that's their job. So why would the guy running the entire industry have any kind of very personal relationship with these guys? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. That much sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like if they speak to the crew of of, of Big Alice, although they're not going to say much, obviously because they're scared of Wilford. But like what they think they want from Wilford, the reality of that it wouldn't be good because he just wants them to be, you know, his minions and not feed them and stuff. So Wilford doesn't strike me that he had the most uh, upstanding, integrity full type of peers before the apocalypse. So it could have been, you know, a longstanding working relationship with one of those, his croonies um, that he was associated with. And, you know, probably promised them like, you know, maybe like you get free brothel Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know, if you come work on the train and you live and you out, you can come out live with us. It's just going to be a party and you can come be on the train. You know, it seems like, and you know, and then when he doesn't sh- show up to the train and he's just hidden away, you know, they maybe they were like ready to like for like a party to happen. And they were really disappointed that the life that they were promised didn't happen, but they didn't know that he was hidden away or wasn't that he was dead um, at that time or not on the train. And then maybe him coming back, kind of like what you were saying, what Josie would do for the tale is what Wilford has done for like this specific group of people, you know, and even like the brakeman, you know, the, the police crew, like don't want to deal with them because they're like obnoxious and rowdy and dirty and, and whatever. And uh, maybe it was, because they were intentionally selected from like whatever network Wilford had um, in, in the prior life. But this is just my theory. I'm just trying to figure out why the heck somebody would love him so much to tattoo them on their titty. <laughs> Could you see the scene? It's like the guy goes to the tattoo parlor. He's like, I'd like a Wilford, please. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, um, you know, the W and the tattoo guy is like, oh, you mean like on the weather balloons? And he's like, oh, yes, exactly right. <laughs> right. I mean, to put something to endure that whole thing, to me, it sounds like this has got to be some kind of a nonverbal communication amongst a subgroup of people. So to me, I'm thinking it's like part of some kind of gang. We had uh, mentioned last week the idea that, that they bore a lot of resemblance to a cult. The stuff you guys were talking about just now sounds like a group that had been waiting for a messiah <laughs> to return. Yeah. A, a, a common cult pastime. So, yeah, it's the kind of control that uh, I guess a, a religious passion can overtake somebody. That seems to be what we're seeing with these guys. And they're suggesting is elsewhere on the train. It's just that we only know about it with the breachmen at this point. Well, that covers pretty much everything that I wanted to cover this week. Do you guys have anything you wanted to discuss? I'll just give one little shout out that the scene with uh, Melanie and Alex, I'll admit, I cried. And I cried when she spoke with Ruth. Oh, (laughs) yes, I cried too. (laughs) 
Yeah, the Ruth scene was unexpected. The the mom and daughter stuff I uh, didn't didn't get me quite as much. But yeah, the Ruth and Ruth, you know, shedding a single tear, not looking at her, stiff upper lip, and all that business. That was pretty emotional for me. Oh, wonderful yeah. episode. Excited for the next one. Does she make it to the station? Well. Probably. I mean, they're not writing her out of the show, I don't think, <laughs> at least not in the third episode of the season. But what comes next? Personally, I, I think here's this is like a softball prediction. The station is going to be in a shambles. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right. Do you guys have any other uh, easy predictions you want to toss out? I'll just wait to see. I think it ended so good on the, the, this cliffhanger. Like this episode was really nice. Um, it was just really, really fun. And I, I hope we get to see what Mel- what happens with Melanie. Um, but I also really want to see what happens with Andre and um, Wilford, what the mind games are going to start playing. No, that's the same thing. I'm here for the ride, man. <laughs> All right. Well, then this has been your coverage for the third episode of TNT's Snowpiercer. This is Paul. This is Kat. And this is Inez. And we will catch up with you guys next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.